From the Cumberland Plateau in the University of the South, this is the Swanee Review Podcast. I just wanted to talk to you first about sort of the lay of the land. We typically ask guests on the Swanee Review to start with reading something from the review. So I thought, if it's okay with you, that we'd start with your Robert Hayden poem. I'm sure it was a long poem. I know. But it's such a, and I think it's so beautiful. Okay. And I think it, it was, in many ways, it was the contemporary review's introduction to your work was having you in it. And it was for, for I think, for Adam and for us, a sort of galvanizing event in the review. It felt like a, a voice that was new to the review in some ways, but that just, I think, sang to us as a poem. So we wanted to start there. And from there, I wanted to sort of let the conversation kind of wander. I have some particular poems I might ask you to touch down on in the books. But I also feel like it's nice just to have a conversation and not be overly scripted. But I, I thought that would be our starting point, if that's okay with you. Sure. I'm, I'm thinking about it just about, you know, that's the America that I want in a way, the world I want. Well, then let's start there. And let's... And let's that's let's, the world that hurt Robert Hayden when he was my teacher. That's what I'm fighting for. And I mean fight. He was like my father. And because of political agendas, they made him a victim and they hurt the man. And they hurt America. We at the symposium at Dartmouth that was supposed to be in his honor found what I would call resegregation still in play. It makes... Um, I, I don't like seeing humanity destroyed, dignity taken away, and the incitement to victimize, silence, and ostracize individuals because of social or political agendas have their effect on individuals. That's what happened in the 1960s to Robert Hayden. And this is what's going on in that kind of notion of elite practice. Swanee, I've been talking to Richard about how different things are now and what Swanee's trying to do from when he was here, when it was the center of the white privilege and resentment of um, the antebellum, and how he was innocent in his upbringing of the effects of that kind of agenda, which he became more alert to as he grew. And then through his interest in American folk music, he found the American Civil Rights Movement. He was part of that uh, heritage school here. And he met, um, well, Guy Carowin, whom I knew at, in Claremont, a fellow who adapted and essentially composed We Shall Overcome. And he was sensitized to this uh, democratic vision, let's say, and the empowerment of underprivileged and the marginalized as a great social agenda of equality and not selection. 
what was striking at the conference, the symposium at Dartmouth, was that uh, I came expecting to meet my betters, people who knew his work and who knew Robert Hayden better than I did. I expected to meet a kind of rampersand or steptoe or Gates scholar who would enlighten me and who had shown Hayden their own measure of respect. But what I found was no black poet except Vivi Francis actually knew his work. None. And the only two former students of Robert Hayden's who were there were me and Michael Collier. Neither of us, of course, black. So again, it showed how those political agendas from the black arts movement suppressed the affection, perpetuation, appreciation, and regard for Robert Hayden within the enclave culture of African-American letters. It was more than disturbing how effective, how lasting, and pernicious that attack was. 1966. It's 2022. What is it, 66 years later? And it's still effective, the takedown of Robert Hayden. This is what I'm talking about. No matter what color instigates it, I'm not for it. So I'm very pleased to be a guest at Swanee in its efforts to recreate a more democratic articulation of American vision. But that's my political agenda and my commitment. And it's to heal the wounding of people like Robert Hayden and my father and my grandfather that I live. Here they live and they not die. As you can see, I'm more than passionate about it. That's very clear. And that was clear to us in the poem. I wonder, would you mind reading it? No, not at all. A Garland of Light To the Memory of Robert Hayden I had taken a long walk from my hotel near the Colosseum, past the antique earth colors of ruins at the Forum, down busy traffic-laden streets to the Trevi Fountain, its lip ring with throngs of tourists snapping selfies, a father bending to the waters and cupping his hands to offer his toddler son a cool drink amidst the glister, sculptures of the gods serene but spouting an abundance that lapped gorgeously over carved stone to that brilliant pooling fan that made this upwelling a semicircle of the bucolic. I moved through to a kind of winding approach to the steps and descended, picking through the patches of crowds huddled in an angling shade cast by the Keats Shelley house. On the street before the fountaining Bernini boat in the piazza, I button-hooked into the entrance and climbed wooden stairs, paid my fee to the smiling attendant and entered the sacred rooms. A kind of library with long walls lined with books, busts of Keats and Shelley, glass cases of miscellaneous manuscripts, wispy locks of their tawny hair, other small trinkets of their lives. 
In Severin's room, the small chamber adjacent to where Keats died, I found a printed card and read the words of Charles Cowden Clark, Keats's boyhood friend, telling how, after the poet had left Enfield School to apprentice to an apothecary at a village two miles away, they'd still meet five to six times a month, Keats with book in hand, so they might sit in an arbor at the edge of a spacious garden to while away a leisure hour with good talk of the fairy queen, to note the spark that fired the train of his poetical tendencies. But a reflection on the glass shone through the transparency of years, a frosted flame of thought that took me back through the inactive pages of my life and I was humbled to recall my own student time. Twenty-three in Ann Arbor, fresh from Japan in my monastery year, sitting with Robert Hayden in his garden. It was fall term, and I'd pursued him, asking for conference hours. He dismissed all my suggestions and simply said, We shall read Keats inviting me to have tea every Monday afternoon at his house. I'd ride a borrowed woman's Schwinn, my books in a wicker basket, and he'd be there reading on his porch, rising to greet me like a street lamp looming over autumn blossoms, Coke bottle glasses gleaming at their rims, red or yellow bow tie at his wrinkled neck, the white dress shirt flapping lightly in the breezes like drying laundry, his hair brilliantined and scented with a light floral trace. I never took one note, instead listened intently to his pure voice, murmuring the great lines, as though hemlock I had drunk, or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute past and leithwards had sunk in some melodious plot of beech and green, and shadows numberless. While the garden swam in flurries of light around us, white gladiolas, tumbles of trumpet blossoms, a vine of wisteria yet to bloom, snarling over a dingy trellis sh shading the gate. He taught me rhythm, phrasing, attention to metaphor, the organic and spectral weave of syntax coiling to simile, design all in shadow, until the burst that reveals the shining figure alit with clarified thought. Tasting of flora and the country green, the deep delved earth, dance and Provencal song and sunburnt mirth. The man who, in his own poems, told of slave ships, rebellions, great leaders of his race, El Haj Malik al Shabazz, chronic angers, and love's austere and lonely offices. What did I know? And did I know that his gift to me was a mirror of mutual affections refracted through the burbling hypocrine? from over a century before, 
when vows once spoken between two friends remain like crimson dyed in grain. And darkling I listen through the pastoral eglantine, my heathen and fast unto thy chastening. Who was this man who ascends like a breath amidst the royal of years? who gave me the utter sound of words like a water-writ script roiling gently as a garland of light on the swells of a fountain. He made me without my knowing it, and his heart touched mine. A great and gentle man, When was he your teacher? It would have been the fall of 1974. So there's a mistake in the poem. I say I'm 23, but I think I was 22. He, uh, when I came to Ann Arbor, I came to study Japanese language and literature. I was a PhD student. I had graduated from college at Pomona, and I spent a year in uh, Japan, postgraduate, on a fellowship to wander the countryside and write poetry. But I found uh, a haven at Sokokuji Monastery in Kyoto, and I lived in a sub-temple of it called Zuishun-in. It was a cold winter. I didn't want to be wandering around the countryside. And uh, in the meantime, my the faculty in Japanese literature at Stanford left to go to Michigan, the great translator Edward Seidensticker, who translated the Tale of Genji, many of Kawabata's novels, some by Mishima, I think, and Robert H. Brower, the translator of 14th and 12th century Japanese court poetry. So I was slighted to study with them, but they moved to Michigan, so I went to Michigan. They were at Stanford, they jumped ship, and then so they recruited me to go there. You took, I think, a language class, a seminar. I think I was in Seidensticker's um, Japanese literature course, not a seminar. And then you could take an elective. So I wanted to take poetry. And I, I knew Robert Hayden was there. So I wanted to study with Robert Hayden. I'd read him as an undergraduate in an anthology called Naked Poetry. So I came to him and asked for what they call conference hours, like a tutorial. And I named all these different topics, you know, African-American poetry, uh, the Harlem Renaissance. And he listened and he said, we shall read Keats. He may have asked me if I'd really read him. And I had taken romantic poets as an undergraduate, but I, I didn't feel connected like I was with Wordsworth. And the language is beautiful and elaborate as it was and beguiling didn't quite penetrate my consciousness, the intensity of Keats's, let's say, the odes. So I thought, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, I don't get Keats. Uh, I'm, I'm cool. I'm ready to be schooled. So we'd meet. I borrowed a Schwinn bike from the parents of one of my classmates in college. They lived in Ann Arbor. And I go over to his house with the little little small pile of books in the wicker basket and we'd sit down and 
his wife would bring us tea and cookies. I remember they actually had crumpets, and I, I didn't know what they were, so I didn't eat them. He was very gentle. He said, don't you prefer crumpets? And I said, I've heard of them. You know, you have to remember, I came from an enclave Japanese-American town in L.A. called Gardena. And my whole diet was basically Japanese and Hawaiian most of my life. At Pomona College, at the dorms and the dining halls, I learned to eat salad for the first time. I'd never eaten one before. So these things were all very new to me. And of course, in Japan, I lived in Japan. I knew, you know, the food. So it was kind of like that. And I was a little bit, I won't say rigid or frozen, but timid or muted. And he would tease me out. He would say, oh, you must slow down and let the words fall across your palate and tongue. Don't be in a rush. We have all day. Just little things like that. Just as he would ask me to read the Keats aloud, you know. So then it got cold, you know, as it does in Ann Arbor. And I, I think officially we're supposed to study for 14 weeks or whatever the semester is, but we only did about seven or eight sessions. And then he said, let's meet in the Hopwood Room, which is the little poetry room at University of Michigan. When, whenever we get there, it would always be sort of crowded. Kids reading magazines. Donald Hall's office was there, and he'd be holding office hours. So we used to stand and talk in the stacks. And he would sort of just ask me questions because we couldn't read aloud and disturb others. And he would murmur questions to me about my reading and what I was thinking. And he'd let me wander away from the Keats and I'd talk about Blake or Wordsworth. And, and he said, yes, but the language. He'd always return to the lavishness of Keats's language, the splendor of English. And I, I was a little bit I don't say annoyed or bothered, but I was trying to think about the contradiction between liberation, let's say, and Blake, not just political, but sexual, imaginative liberation, and the um, affection for landscape at Wordsworth, and how that jibed with the lavishness of language in Keats, because I didn't see political vision in Keats, and it, it made me withhold a bit of my fervor. I was very passionate about Blake in those days. So I considered it a lesser vision somehow, the splendor of consciousness, the splendor of language, the enjoyment of articulate meditation. You know, I'd spent a year, like, silent meditation in the day. <laughs> the Zen temple, you know, I knew what that was, but articulate meditation was something that was um, a conundrum. Robert Hayden brought me to that and my love of language and the uh, performance and exercise of human consciousness in the shaping of beauteous words. He was like a musician. He was like a Maestro. I'm sorry. I, I, I love thinking about it. In a way, it answers the next question I had was, 
it's clear how much that must have meant to you as a human being. Exactly. And how much that meant to you as a young poet. My questions for you about this poem have, in, in my running through it, has, has, at least in my initial conception of it, was a, a bifurcated question. What did this mean to you as a person? What did this mean to you in terms of your craft? What's very clear to me in the way you talk about Hayden is that there was no separation between the life and the aesthetic. They were in him and in Keats and that he was trying to instill in you some understanding of that, both in the work and in the work you were going to do. It's human culture. You know, poetry is human culture, the way cooking is, the way changing a diaper is. I mean, it's a persistence of love, in some ways intimate relations, but also communal relations. And it's this ancient art we have called poetry, but it's about how we preserve each other's humanity and how we care for not just consciousness, but for each other. And I was being tutored. I was being guided. I was being mentored and brought into the culture by people like Robert Hayden. My first poetry teacher was very much the same way, the great poet Bert Myers in Los Angeles. And I was gently brought into this guild, this tradition, and as a, an aphib, an apprentice, a naive, if you will, a, a blankness that just had earnestness. And I, I had devotion to pay. That was the, the price I paid. And I had a lot of it. And I trusted them, and they trusted me. You know, they trusted that I was questing. And they honored that questing with giving me good lessons. I think this is the preservation of human culture. It's always the way. How to make a, flute, a bone flute. How to carve a flute from bamboo. How to make song out of wood. This is how we build our civilization. And I was um, fortunate to have been asked and included when I was young. I almost feel like it's like we're still next to the fire in a cave with the firelight illuminating the walls and I'm being given lessons in song. The teacher has an immensity <clears throat> that the student can't imagine because you're only at the edges of it. You see the aurora and not the inner fire. The master, the teacher, also knows that you can't reveal the inner fire in full, or you'll burn the kid up, you know? Yeah, I was lucky. Hearing you talk about especially that, that light, that emanation out of, the, out of these great minds and great artists, if I'm trying to think about the way I think about your first book, Yellow Light, that the reflection of that light and the hunger for light is very present in that book. It makes me think about my favorite poem in the book, which is what for? Yeah, it's a poem from my father. And it's also about coming into my own poetic consciousness about why, what I'm doing this for. But also realizing that you are someone else on the page or in your poetry than you are in life. I sort of crossed a Rubicon in this poem when I 
knew that I had a bigger charge and the larger charge was to be a poet. I felt myself growing as I was writing this poem. Would you like me to read it? I would love to hear you read it. What for? At six, I lived for spells. How a few Hawaiian words could call up the rain, could hymn like the sea in the long swirl of chambers, curling in the nautilus of a shell. How Amida's ballads of the Buddha land in the drone of the priest liturgy could conjure money from the poor and give them nothing but mantras, the strange syllables that heal desire. I live for stories about the war my grandfather told over Hana cards, slapping them down on the mats with the sharp Japanese kiai. I live for songs my grandmother sang, stirring curry into a thick stew, weaving a calligraphy of Canon's love into grass mats and straw sandals. I live for the red volcano dirt staining my toes, the salt residue of surf and sea wind in my hair, the arc of a flat stone skipping in the hollow trough of a wave. I lived a child's world, waited for my father to drag himself home, dusted with blasts of sand, powdered rock, and the strange ash of raw cement, his deafness made worse by the clang of pneumatic drills, sore in his bones from the buckings of a jackhammer. He'd hand me a scarred lunch pail, let me unlace the high-top GI boots, Call him the new name I'd invented that day in school. Write it for him on his newspaper. He'd rub my face with hands that felt like gravel roads, tell me to move, go play, and then he'd walk to the laundry sink to scrub, rinse the dirt of his long day from a face brown and grained as koa wood. I wanted to take away the pain in his legs, the swelling in his joints, give him back his hearing, clear and rare as crystal chimes, the fins of glass that wrinkled and sparked the air with their sound. I wanted to heal the sores that work and war had sent to him, let him play catch in the backyard with me, tossing a tennis ball past papaya trees without the shoulders of pain shrugging back his arms. I wanted to become a doctor of pure magic, to string a necklace of sweet words, fragrant as pine needles and plumeria, fragrant as the bread my mother baked. Place it like a lay of cowrie shells and picake flowers around my father's neck and chant him a blessing, a sutra. It seems to me a poem of incredible ambition for a young poet to, to, to sort of, there's a kind of embarkation yeah, yeah. in this poem. A poet is always giving birth to themselves each time you, they write a poem. It is inspiritment. It is sponsoring, self-sponsoring, if you will, like 
hip and great expectations. It is authorizing that which in many ways has been dampened by our social and material lives to give birth to the inner flame, the um, catch in the throat, the tune in the mind, that which is struggling to catch fire and be let out. It is a kind of embarkation, but it needs attention. It needs the quiet attention of the film of the fire against the inner glass of the soul. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. One of the things that I had access to as a, a younger poet reading this poem was something very structural that struck me and still strikes me today, which is the refrain of it. I lived, I lived, I lived. And then it, there's a shift. I wanted, I wanted. So there is this reception and there's this yearning that anchors the poem all the way through. But there's actually a moment that means so much to me as a writer and as someone who thinks about poems, which is that moment about halfway through where you say, I'd invented. It um, follows the same rhetorical pattern in a way, but it's sort of slipped in. You don't feel it or hear it. It's just sort of a haunting in the stanza. It's like an upper level harmonic in music. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's American prosody, uh, that, that poem, that stanzaic structure. It, it also is biblical. It's, it's a, a rhetorical technique of the repetition of a, of phrasing, you know, and Walt Whitman, you know, Pablo Neruda, the Psalms, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes all have that. Oracular speech, like I Have a Dream by Martin Luther King, it uses that as a kind of musical repetition and also a slow building, a slow kind of acelerando, you know. It's in music as well, you know, the, and then it weaves through the, as a theme in a, in a movement of a concerto or symphony. And then you get introduced, but then it's subtle variations change things. And then when it comes back in its mimesis, it's full, it's full return. You get this feeling of completion and authority and triumphant completion. And it's just a musical trick, but technique. But again, it's human culture. We know how to do these things. Our orators, our poets, our masters of language. This is what's passed on. I wonder, too, if included in that pantheon of makers, I can't not hear your grandmother's spoon right against the curry pot or 
that jackhammering echo of the father's work, there seems to me, and this is something that, that it strikes me in all of your work, is both their sheer capacity and the, the retreat. I don't know that it's a retreat, but a way of, of creating space for those kinds of, of mastery and repetition and song to enter into the space of the poem. Well, there are also disturbances because the pneumatic drill, the jackhammer, things like that, these are things that actually are not musical and not part of um, the breath, not part of the harmony. And yet by including them, you bring them in. They, they, they seem to be destructive or obstructive and not part of this music of love. But um, love includes that which is not loved in it, hatred, vitriol, envy, gluttony. And the lesson of human culture is that these are things that need to be included, the disturbances, the raw with the cooked, the uh, being and the non-being, as they say in Buddhism. You can't eliminate, you can't segregate, you dig. So you, you have to include it in your um, caritas, in your gestures of affection. What do you find yourself, when you're writing now, when you're writing today, what do you find yourself listening for? What are you trying to... I'm trying to listen to myself. I'm trying to... A lot of my life is not myself. And I'm learning to how to accept it as into myself. And it's like cobra or a python digesting a deer, you know, like I have so many chores and duties with regard to teaching, but also raising a child and negotiating, navigating my life, that I'm always outside myself, outside the piece, outside the song. So as a poet, I try to re-enter the singing, and it takes a little bit of meditation. And it's a different kind of, it's a passive kind of thing in a way. You can't be aggressive about it. It's sometimes called the stillness of mind, you know, the blah, blah. And that's the hardest thing to do in, in, in contemporary life because nobody uh, authorizes it. They're always trying to push you off of it into something else, even teaching. So to find that frequency is what I tried to tune my soul to align my spine and my breath, my posture. If we're thinking about what Hayden was saying to you as a teacher and mentor, there is a sense of a need to cultivate the lyric yeah. in, the, in the self. Yeah, exactly. What we're listening for is the, the music of the individual. Yeah, you know, then that's the, the primary in a way. If you come from that, you're always going to be okay. I think that's what he was sort of saying to me that I didn't know. There were all these other accoutrements of uh, society, culture, and art that I thought, but if you do that, and then you can, you, from there, you get everything else. It reminds me of a moment in, in your poem, Bugle Boys, as well. Yeah. That sense of, of attentive tuning, balancing, and creating a stillness in yourself to, to hear something as it's intended. Well, you to know, hear a made thing, as it's intended. My father, I mean, it was so many years later. I was in my 50s, I think, when I was trying to create my first tubed audio system. 
I mean, a, a, a system that, that didn't use transistor equipment, solid state, but used vacuum tubes to create the um, amplification of sound. Going back to early 20th century technology of audio, you dig. And I didn't know why I was so powerfully attracted unconsciously to wanting those kind, that kind of equipment. But I started remembering working with my father at night when I was 10 and 11. And he was assembling these do-it-yourself kits to make equipment, uh, Heath kit and Dyna kit, and making his own electronics on the living room floor, you know. He was losing his hearing, and he, he wanted to hear his big band music. But it was, in, I don't know how old I was, but all of a sudden it hit me like a lightning bolt that he was doing this to listen to his music for the last time before his hearing completely disappeared. And he let me help him because he would ask me what it sounded like when he made these little changes, like he'd switch out different kinds of preamplification tubes. They're called input tubes or driver tubes. And they alter the sound. And he would ask me in Hawaiian pidgin English how it was, you know, this one okay, how how like that? This one more so, so full, this one teen, thin, you know? He would ask me these questions and I would answer him and say, this one more fat, more full. And he would go from there and, and change this the circuit a bit. And it was just, it was like that moment with, in the Keats Shelley house, it just hit me like a lightning bolt. My, my father let me help him here. I also thought, what an incredible, peaceful gesture and gift to give himself. Here is a man who came through World War II, and all he wanted was to listen to music. You know, what a, what a titanic, peaceful mission. And my reverence, my awe, my appreciation for his resolve and heroism just went up a million times. Kind of like amplification, you know? I thought, this is what human culture is about, is to enlarge our peace. This is what we must be devoted to. This is what we must worship. Yeah, Bugle Boys, yeah. Want me to read it? That'd be great. Now, the problem here, of course, is my poems are long. Not only are they long lines, but they're long. They're not quick hits. I work with narrative, and it takes a while to unfold. So, with apologies to your readers, they're not short takes. Uh, apologies to your listeners, let's say. Bugle Boys. As I am Kubota's voice in this life, chanting broken hymns to the sea, so also am I my father's hearing, fifty-five now and three years shy of his age when he died. My ears open as the mouth shells of twin conchs, drinking in a soft onshore wind. In the fall of 63, at the end of our first year in Gardena, south of L.A., electrician that he was, 
He built his own home hi-fi, speakers out of parts from Scandinavia, an amp kit ordered through the mails, the glittering turntable, brushed aluminum painted gold, a belt drive, and an inmoored motor, each component meticulously laid out on a bedsheet soon after it arrived. Jigsawed cabinet boards with serrated edges, yellow capacitors and barristers black as tar, shining and glossy as aquarium fish under living room light, and the miniature crystal towers of vacuum tubes, steel pins scaly as aged platinum, erector sets of gray plates and haloed getters, intricate as space stations under sparkling glass. In shapes like Coke bottles, potato mashers, and my favorite, the tiny rockets with arrowed heads he called bugle boys for the labels of white line cartoons, anthropomorphized tubes blowing trumpets stamped on each of their sides. They make electric sound come sweet, he said, like no can believe. He'd spend evenings in the garage soldering circuitry and studying schematics, blue zigzags and squiggles on gray paper that folded like army maps, checking his work. Once the speakers were set in their walnut cabinets and the amp out of its gold mesh cage, he asked me to listen while he balanced the stereo channels, a marvel, and swapped input tubes pulling pears from the sagging pocket of his aloha shirt, the glass of them making a gentle clatter like tea or sake cups as they knocked softly together when he dipped and swirled his fingers in, pulling them out like fancy fish from a bowl. He couldn't hear. Or rather, he couldn't quite hear, losing it from a lifetime of cumulative small misfortunes, a fever as a child in Macaulay, guns and cannons while away at war at seventeen, the job holding down a jackhammer, the job under jet engines at Kaneohe Marine Base. I knew every reason, though he never gave one himself. Sit here, he'd say, pointing to the carpeted floor in front of the base sofa we never used. He'd throw me a zabuton to sit on, tell me to concentrate, and I'd hear measure after measure of big band tunes filling the room like airy clouds of brass cotton lofting around the lamps, ashtrays, and coconut curios around me. American Patrol, Chiri Chiri Bean, and Shake Down the Stars took turns with lush vibraphones and strummed ukes, fifties hotel music from the islands. Tell me what you're hearing, he'd say, and I would, my father taking notes, smiling over our evenings of pleasurable work, string basses and horns in my ears, kick drums and toms reverberating through the floorboards, Sinatra swaggering a tune just behind the beat. What did I know of travail or passion then? My father trying to beat the clock, 
hastening to hear or not hear each spinning A-side he ever danced to at the black cat in Honolulu. Before the world closed its cave of cotton around him, symbols become a silent splash of metallic light, snare rolls a strobe of sticks without sound, a song only a murmur without scale, and music a birthplace he could never return to. No kaipole manu, sang the sons of Hawaii, and so I said they did. My father jotting it down, bugle boys jousting in the pocket of his shirt. It is one of those poems that catches you up in terms of, uh, there's so many, uh, the way a child can pay attention or is taught to pay attention that we then lose and rediscover, I think, sometimes in poetry, sometimes in our own lived experience. I was thinking about what you said in the introduction of that poem about your poems aren't short takes. Hmm. They require a kind of patience. And the the mode that you have, have cultivated over your poetic career is is one that is rooted in storytelling. And it seems to me that we see a version of that embedded in your father's attention to the to the songs that he loved that he would at some point soon be hearing for the last time. And there is, I think there is, there isn't that there's something elegiac, there's something reverential in that, but I think there's also, I mean, this is coming back to a conversation we had prior to our, our interview here for the podcast, which is there is something transgressive in that there is something pushing against the dominant culture in, um, in both the subject of that poem and the way you fashion your poems that there is something your resistance to the short take your cultivation of patience and silence i think is 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 one of the great gifts of your of your poetics well I, I, thank you i i think part of why my poems are long and somewhat lavish in rhythms and measures is because I'm bringing in so much which has been excluded in common consciousness. A short take is like the prisoners in, were in prison together a long time telling each other jokes. It's an old New Yorker cartoon. They don't have to tell the whole joke. They just said 41. And you know that's because they share so much and agree so much that there is this common culture. My culture, my society, my community has not been included. And what people also don't understand is it hasn't even been included by my own community. I didn't know anything about Japanese-American history before World War II because the community was silent about it. They, we lost the Japanese language. We lost the ability to communicate with our elders. Then the interregnum, the catastrophe of the internment, the imprisonment of 120,000 Japanese Americans made them ashamed of their culture in some ways. 
it created the silence. My father and my uncles, they wouldn't say anything about what happened during World War II. My grandfather was in prison, and my family would never say what happened to him because it was silence. So my poems are about bringing these things back and owning them, embracing them, loving them. It takes time. It takes articulation. I can't say 41 and have everyone understand. I have to explain. Like my grandfather would say when I was a kid, you explain, FBI. I not spy. I fishing. I catching fish. Only use torch for the light. No can explain, FBI. You tell them. You learn speak good English. You respect. You give them my story. So that's what I try to do. And if they take time, so what? I remember Pablo Neruda saying in an interview one time that in South America, in Chile, so many of the, the landscape, so much of the landscape has not been described. So that's the reason why his poems are so long, that they're unchronicled, they're undescribed, and the history and the people there are uncelebrated. So his work is to celebrate that. That's a kind of that's sort of my mission. I'm at the beginning of knowing. So it takes a little while. I can't say 41 and have people understand. It takes some time. We have to understand the losses. If I am trying to arrive at the 41 of, of Garrett Hongo's work, if someone sort of asks me, what is it that I'm drawn to in your work? It's it, the my impulse is just hand them the books and say, just go sit down for a while and listen. But if I have to embed it in, in an idea, one of the things, one of the words I keep coming back to is is archive. In the way in which your your poems are containers for these stories, for these experiences, the way your line, especially the line that you develop in Coral Road, is, is, a, is a statement about capacity, about the way we can, the line can be a place where we anchor not just information, but a, but a history. Not without music, though. But not without music. The measure is important. Well, yeah, the long line is from Whitman in many ways, but it's also in Lamentations. And it helps me in terms of all kinds of things like pacing, information, the expansive hold on a certain level of consciousness. To hold the long line, you, you've got to have like focus, and uh, but focus with easy breath. I like that. It's like slow gung fu, you know. I don't know how I got there, but I had great masters in proximity. You know, C.K. Williams was my teacher in graduate school, and then Charles Wright. You know, <laughs> those are the guys with the long line, and uh, you can't mess with those. And I remember Charles saying many times he wanted to join the long line of Walt Whitman with the short lyrical intensities of Emily Dickinson. Mm. Of course, he's done that. 
And behind him, there's just so much knowledge of the technology of the English language. You know, I, I won't get into it now, but he's not telling the full truth when he says with Dick, uh, Whitman and Dickinson. There's also Gerard Manley Hopkins and Ezra Pound and the Seafarer. I mean, there's a lot going on. My line is different. It's a little flatter. It's And also my devotion to narration. Charles is a lyricist. C.K. is also narrative-based in his long lines, but it's a little different for me. As you say, my intention and my mission is archival somewhat. And his was transcendence or enlightenment or epiphany. Mine is is kind of transmission and preservation. So the tonality is a bit different. I like the long line, particularly in Coral Road, and I still work with it in the manuscript that I'm working on now, but I also find myself relaxing and working with shorter lines or, or broken lines, hemistical lines. I love the, the technology of poetry too. I'm not a fussy formalist much, but I like the knowledge of it all. I love the tradition. I love the variations. I love the correspondence between technique and emotion. And sometimes I just mess around. But the hardest thing, of course, is the feeling, finding the measure for the feeling. And once you have that, then that sets the that sets the measure, that sets it all up. But just finding it can be fun. You know, you don't have it right away all the time. And finding it and trying a different bow, a different bow stroke, that's, that's just part of it. It's, it's an activity of pleasure. That seems to me like a great place to end, thinking about this activity of pleasure. Garrett Hongo, thank you for your time today, your, your patience, your body of work. We're so thrilled that you're here in Suwannee and that we get to celebrate you with this year's Aiken Taylor Award for Modern American Poetry. Well, I'm very pleased to be here. I've had such a warm reception from all different sectors of your community. It's more socializing than I normally do an entire year, which is a little um, overwhelming, but it's been entirely a pleasure, I must say. Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly is by purchasing a print and online subscription at thesuwannereview.com. To discover what's happening at the review, visit our website or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Suwannee Review. Until next time, this is The Suwannee Review, new since 1892.